Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Universal Dialect Show. I uh, have an awesome guest on. Uh, he's an artist, rapper, paranormal investigator, author, co-host of an awesome show called I Want to Believe right now uh, in their seventh season. Uh, he's a returning guest from episode number two. Uh, welcome back to the Universal Dialect Show, Nomar Slevic. What's up, my man? Yo, thanks so much for having me back. Appearance number two. Yeah, dude, honor. I mean, I, I got to have my returning guests on, the ones that, you know, <laughs> I feel like are awesome and they have a lot of things to talk about and say. And uh, you've been, like, really busy, dude, like, super busy. Yeah. yeah, always, always, I've always got my hand into something. And you and me, man, we go, like, way back, you know, way yeah. back with uh, with the music stuff. So it's uh, it's always a pleasure to, when we can interact on something. Yeah, because, I mean, I, I your first album, I remember getting it and i think it got stolen out of my car with a bunch of other <laughs> stuff but I, I didn't know you personally it wasn't until i reached out for you reach out to you and i think it was sasquatch a great dying oh yeah yeah yeah. and that's when we we started to like communicate and i did yeah. that and then i did some other stuff with you and it obelis and yeah. a bunch of other like reviews but yeah, that's when yeah. we just started to like develop like this 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 relationship, this friendship. Um, yeah, and I've always thought you were a great artist, and I say this all the time to all the artists that I have on when I interview them is I just don't understand how you have like all these mainstream artists getting all this pub doing mm -hmm. shit work when you have like true artists, you know, with a lot of talent and something to say, like hidden essentially. You know, yeah. I just don't get it. Yeah, it's uh, a topsy-turvy world is the only thing I've realized after 40-plus years on the planet. I, I don't understand anything. <laughs> yeah, I got you, man. Are you are you inclined to still do music? or? Absolutely. Um, I just uh, hopped on a, a Hobbs Sputnik song. It's going to be, uh, I think, me and Idobolus and uh, uh, Hobbs did the beat. And uh, he's doing the whole production for the for for the whole album, and uh, he's having other rappers get on. So I, I was excited to get on that. And then um, a project I did way back in the day called Done. Um, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that was me, Itabolus, uh, Marcelo, and Slap. And uh, Marcelo goes by uh, Nebula something nebula 76 something like that. I'm so sorry, uh, Nebula, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, uh, we have kind of gotten the band back together a bit and we've been getting all these super hot instrumentals from Nebula and uh, Idobolus and I have been spitting on them uh, when we can and we're waiting for Slap. Slap is doing this huge push right now for this album and all these singles he's got going right now. Right. It is such dope stuff. So I definitely, people should uh, check it out. He's on Instagram and he's always posting snippets of his videos and stuff. So check him out, Slap. And uh, so we're waiting for Slap to get on some of the verses, but we're excited about that too. Yeah, I interviewed it like I think ten episodes ago, which was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was a great interview, man. Yeah, another homie, man. Another, another yeah. awesome. You know, he's somewhat forgotten rap. artist. Yeah, and he's up in the rap attic, and he's uh, <laughs> he's doing his thing, man. He's doing his thing. So right, it's, right, it's cool. Shout out to Id, man. Love you, Id. Yeah. All right, dude. So. You're on your seventh season of I Want to Believe. How's mm. that? How's that going? How's the turnout? You know? Um, well, it's it's going good. I'll start by saying that because I, I love doing it. It's a passion project. I basically make almost nothing doing it. And it's a way to keep my foot in the audio field 
you know, as opposed to all these books that I'm writing, because that stuff takes so long and it takes so much of my time, but I, I've got to scratch the audio itch. And if I'm not doing a song, which are becoming fewer and far between these days, I've got to scratch that itch with something. And that's where the podcast was kind of born from. And the first um, five seasons, it was me and my best friend, Kyle Sawyer, and we're going through and telling all these stories. It's a storytelling podcast. It's not a typical podcast uh, 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 where there's an interview or uh, um, there's another person on or, you know, something to that effect. It's, it's just storytelling. So we pick a subject, we research it, and then we try to tell the story the best way we can. And I try to have high production value where there's background music and there's samples and there's interesting stuff to, to listen to throughout the whole thing. And uh, so for the first five seasons, my buddy Kyle and I were doing that together in person and then COVID hit and uh, we, we had to go our separate ways, which sucked. And uh, cause we still got crazy love for each other. So where he's at, he's got like shit for internet. So it's really tough for him to be able to record with me. So one thing, what we tried to do to combat some of that is uh, when he and I would get together, uh, I would have like six or seven episodes written and we would try to record as many of them as we could together, you know, like in just a one day period. And we started seeing each other uh, uh, less and less because gas is getting crazy, you know, and uh you know, some financial situations are making it harder for us to like get together and hang out. Cause he's so far, he's like three and a half hours away from me. So it gets a little tough to hang out. So, uh, what's happened with season six and seven, six, he was on like half the episodes and then I did half of them solo. And then with season seven, I'm basically doing them all solo. If he can fit one in there. Awesome. I'll have a guest co-host once in a while, like Valerie LaFaso or my girlfriend, Christine Donovan. Um, she's a paranormal researcher in her own right. She's also an artist and photographer and an amazing person. And um, um, so we, it, it's fun for her and I to get together and, you know, tell some of these stories. So um, I guess <laughs> a long story, even longer, that's where we're at with season seven, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So far it's, it's, it's on fire, dude. It, it's so awesome, dude. Um, the way that you, uh, your diction is so perfect in there. It's like you want you don't want to mess up any words, but it's so like smooth. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, um, I, I appreciate that, and that's <laughs> that's part of the hard work, man. Because it takes me like eight hours to do an episode from start to finish, and that includes research and writing a script and uh, adding all the audio elements and recording the audio. But I fuck up all the time, so I'm always going through and removing all my mistakes. You know what I mean? Right. So it does sound smooth and good, and and like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Right. No. And it's so seamless that uh, cool. yeah, episodes just in general don't tend to be really long, but it's yeah. so smooth that it seems too short. I'm like, damn, man, is that's <laughs> it. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of want to come in and hit them. And then, yeah, you know, yeah. that's it. Like whatever the story needs, that's what it's going to get. Sometimes it's 20 minutes. Sometimes it's an hour and 20 minutes. You know, right. so it's, it's what I like the hour and 20 minute ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get that feedback a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I get it. I get it. You can't do like five hour episodes. You know what I mean? It yeah, just, yeah. you know, yeah, it just gets it, old it, after a while for some people. You want to, you want to hit really them quick. Does. And be in and yeah. out, you know? And and I know like yeah. as a podcast listener myself, you know, there's there are podcasts that that I really enjoy listening to. And there's things about them that makes me gravitate towards them. It's not a whole lot of uh, uh talking at the beginning, like the uh, the mundane 
you know, or, or housekeeping talk at the beginning. There's not a lot of that. I like it when they just kind of jump into whatever story they're going to tell or information they're going to share. And then they get out and I guess I'm mirroring that or I'm making my version of that, you know, cause the, even when I'm on with Kyle, we don't have all this banter for the first 10 minutes. It's kind of like, Hey, what's up, dude, what's up, dude, blah, blah, blah. All right. <laughs> you know, here's right. an ad for whatever project I got going on. And then boom, we're right into it. You know? So you say you had an issue where like, you know, Kyle is far away. Yeah. And you're, you know, obviously where you live and then you have the yeah. issue of going back and forth. He Does he not have a recording equipment in his house where let's say something along the lines. Let's say you come up with a plan where he does a certain amount of episodes, send, you know, he does it in his house. He sends you the that then you do the rest or whatever. Or, yeah. you know, you both tag team on an episode and he'll read certain paragraphs. You'll read the other paragraphs and that way you don't have to worry about like just where it's like, oh, only one person is doing the show over another. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've uh, played around with a few different ways of doing that. And, uh, and it, it does work for the most part. Uh, <laughs> but what um, uh, um, the way we used to do the podcast is we would drop all episodes at once at the beginning of a season. It's kind of like Netflix style. You get all the episodes at once and then you can right. binge them. And, um, and when we were doing that, that did work out pretty well that he could record his stuff on his time. I record my stuff and then I can edit it all together. But, um, now what we're doing is we've gone to a monthly release schedule and that's really just so we can like get in the algorithm and get people more on board to looking forward to episodes as opposed to here's a big, you know, here's three hours of audio for the year. You know, right. and then we'll we'll see you next January, and you know, and that uh, again, we did that for five seasons. That was great, but you know, it, it wasn't sustainable for lis- listener retention, if you will. Right? Yeah, because again, people have short memories. So yeah, yeah, yeah. get about you. They'll unfollow <laughs> your stuff, and then next yeah, thing yeah, you know, yeah. like you know, you're losing listeners because you're not as active, and they're waiting for something right. new, and you're like, oh. We- you know, I'll binge this and then that'll be it, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I get so it. I get- it. Yeah. It was, and it was fun to do it that way. Cause I don't think anybody is doing that. So it was kind of like a, a niche thing we were kind of doing. And, uh, but again, we, we had our loyal listeners, but you know, this is opening up to, uh, you know, more people and, you know, something new gets a notification every month, which is nice as opposed to here's 15 notifications in one day, you know, for each episode that, that gets posted, which I'm sure is annoying. I didn't even think about that aspect when I started it, you know, but anyway, (laughs) it doesn't matter as long as you get people coming on. Um, Yeah. yeah, yeah. Let's do like a little recap because I, I, you know, in case they didn't listen to episode two or because the recording sucked because I was using my computer (laughs) and their suck is not listening to episode two, but go on. What what got you into the paranormal? Because you were initially sure. a, uh, an artist, musician, yeah, yeah, you know, and I know you love the subject yeah. in your music, but what yeah. prompted you to kind of go in that direction? Well, um, just like you said, I've always had a love for the paranormal, always had a love for the music, like since childhood, and they were they just ran with me parallel. And uh, that started with some paranormal things that happened to me as a child, had my own experiences. I saw a UFO when I was four years old and that was crazy. But um, when I got into, I don't know, I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. And I, I started asking people if they had like a ghost story, like a personal ghost story that they could tell me or, or any type of scary story, you know, that, but that was real that happened to them. Excuse me. 
<laughs> felt the burp coming on. Sorry. No, it's all right, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, um, so it asked people, you know, to share stories with me and, uh, when they would, I would write, write them down, you know, just so I could like refer to refer to them later. And then as I got into my teens, I actually like started physically collecting stories by like going to the library and checking out books and, um, getting uh, newspaper cutouts of like UFO encounters or around Halloween, the Bangor daily news, which is the big newspaper in my area they would have like a, you know, a haunted house story because it was October or whatever. And, you know, I would cut that stuff out and keep it. And, you know, I kept doing that and doing that. And as I got into my twenties, I was like, holy crap, I've got a whole bunch of stories here. Some from the newspapers, some that I've collected, some that have happened to me, some that's happened to people I know, people I don't know. And I was basically looking at my shelf of paranormal books. And I was like, there's no book here dedicated to ufos in my state there's a thousand ghost books based in my state but there's nothing for the paranormal and even at that time when i had that thought there was one or two books uh, dedicated to bigfoot in this state so i i was like uh, i'm gonna write that book i'm gonna try and uh it took me like six years and uh but i but i did it and i finished it and then it was, is somebody going to want to put it out? And then that was a whole other thing that took another, you know, year and a half or whatever, but somebody did want to put it out. And, um, since then it's been on, you know, just caught the writing bug. And that first book took like six years to write just because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And, you know, I was collecting stories and all that good stuff, but now, you know, I can churn out a book, not really churn, but I can churn out a book like once a year, once every two years, I would prefer every two years, but financially it'd be great if it was every year, you know, right. Got you. but, uh, but, uh, but every two years is like my, my goal. And what, what was the name of that first book? UFOs over Maine. Okay. And, and what was the, out of all the stories on there, how many stories do you think you, you have on there? Oh, about? Um, that got into the published work because they all kind of swim in my head, but there was a certain amount that the publisher wanted in the book. Eh, it might be 20, 25 stories, something like that. And which one is the most compelling out of all of those? Oh boy. In, uh, in my opinion, I think the most compelling one is the Allagash abductions. That's probably the most compelling. The strangest one is about a woman named Wendy C. Allen. Um, that's, that's probably the strangest one. And I really like that story, but, the most compelling i think and that has like the most credibility is probably the allagash abductions yeah yeah the, the allagash is for sure like the most not only just the most compelling but like most of the old school documentaries of like in the 90s and the early 2000s yeah. would talk about that incident all the time yeah, oh, i think that's sure, the yeah. one with the dudes on the boat there was twins yeah. and they got abducted yep. can you can you describe the story Absolutely. a little bit for those that don't yeah, know about yeah. it so it kind of rivaled the Travis Walton case. Like they, there was like, it was kind of similar because there was like a lot of guys and they were all together, but the Allagash was on the East coast and theirs was like, you know, on the West coast. So the Allagash abduction case took place in, oh shit. I think it's 1975. I got to check my shit out. No, go ahead, man. <laughs> I know it was, I know it was pre eighties. Oh yeah. 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 Hopefully you can edit all this out. No, dude, it, it's dang. <laughs> this is real life stuff. I don't, I don't edit like you know to fake stuff. This is yeah, real life yeah. stuff. All right, well, fair enough. Think about it, like when Joe Rogan, you know, has to stop to tell Jamie to to do something, you know, you know, 
<laughs> I, I don't really fuck with Joe Rogan, but I, I can, I know what you mean though. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You're right. This, this is fun to stay in. <laughs> well, anyways, it, it was like uh mid seventies. Okay. Right. And it was uh, four friends. They were all going to school together in Massachusetts and two of them are twin brothers. And they decided to come up to the to Maine to the Allagash Wilderness Waterway for like their spring break. <clears throat> and they were going to spend, you know, like 11 days or whatever that is that, you know, like that Friday to the following like Sunday, you know what I mean? For right. that whole week to stay up in Maine. And uh, so they drove up and they drove straight to um, um, the campground in Baxter State Park in Millinocket. And they had a couple of nice days with like fishing uh, and they took a, you know, a small plane out, you know, they had a pilot and take them out to some of the islands and they had a great time canoeing and swimming and all that good stuff. And then one night they're at one of these little offshoots that's in the Allagash Wilderness Waterway. And there's actually a whole bunch of people there. And it's just about dusk and a weird light is seen in the sky and everybody sees it and everybody kind of stops what they're doing and they stare at it. And they're all like, what the hell is that? And a lot of people assume it's, we just saw a UFO. Well, that was crazy. And it went away and everybody forgot about it. Well, a few nights later, the guys were running low on food on protein specifically, and they needed to fish some more. So they went out during the day. And they couldn't catch a thing. It was driving them nuts. And they were actually getting like literally kind of worried that they weren't going to have enough food. So they decided that they were going to go out that night and maybe the fishing would be better once everybody had kind of cleared out. It was just them. You know, they had found this little uh, island to themselves that they could uh, dock at and it had picnic table and stuff. And, and they thought if they went night fishing, they might have some, some more luck. So night finally fell and they lit a big bonfire so they could find their way back in the darkness. And so they took off and while they're fishing, they see the UFO again and they're all staring at it and they're all in awe. It's a lot lower this time. And then the next thing they know they're back on shore and their bonfire is down to embers and they all feel kind of weird. And they're like, how long have we been gone? And they're like, the thing's down to embers, so it has to be ours because it was a big bonfire. So they really couldn't rationalize it. They they couldn't think about it too much. They were literally sitting at the picnic table, and they all just kind of fell asleep. Wake up the next morning, they're lethargic, and they kind of just go through the motions for the rest of their stay. They're not exuberant young men on spring break and you know the main wilderness but they they go through the motions and then they go home and then years go by and they're they're still all good friends years go by and one of the gentlemen starts having these really odd dreams and coinciding with that or running parallel with that is he starts to have these odd medical issues that he, he's like where are these coming from and we're talking like seizures and things like that so these dreams that he's having, he's surrounded by these creatures and he's laying down on some sort of 
bed of some sort and it feels medical in some way and they're doing things to him and every time he wakes up he's he's scared and he's sweating and he knows it's not normal these aren't just nightmares you know and they kind of came on all of a sudden though and then he starts talking to the other guys and they're having similar dreams even his wife is having uh, some sort of similar dream where there's a creature involved so it gets really weird. So he actually talks to his doctor about it. He's like, I think something happened to me when I was in Maine in the seventies. And this is what happened. And, and the doctor, thank God was, was like, you know what? There's a specialist you should talk to. And it's basically the guy that was known in new England that took UFO reports. And his name's Ray Fowler. And he's from Maine. He's from Southern Maine. And he worked a lot in the Massachusetts and new England area on in investigating cases. So, this guy who was having the uh, the nightmares, he went to Ray Fowler and told him what was going on. And Ray heard his story. And this kind of took some coaxing on the part of the experiencer, but explained to Ray exactly what was going on and finally got a point and, and, and to tell Ray that he has a twin brother. And Ray was like, oh, I've heard about twins and aliens being interested in twins. You know what? I want to talk more to you. I want to talk to all four of you. So that led to another year or two of Ray Fowler interviewing these guys, doing a whole background rundown on all four guys, and then had all four guys go through hypnosis sessions. And through the hypnosis sessions, it was uncovered that all four men went through an abduction together that night when they went out on the canoe and they saw the UFO really low before they were just back on shore, this spotlight came down from the UFO and it was almost like a tube, they said. And it almost like sucked them up kind of like a vacuum, you know, and the next thing they know they're in this room, you know, and uh, there's these strange creatures there and they can't tell if they're, you know, skin or if it's like a skin tight suit, but it has like a bluish shine to it, you know? And uh, uh, during the first parts of their, hypnosis they couldn't really see the faces there was like a memory block on the faces like they're almost too scared to remember what their faces look like but they remember being manipulated and and scoops being taken out of them and samples and they were placed on uh, a table and this little thing lowered over them and kind of like scanned them it seemed like and this there's also a contraption that manipulated their genitalia and made them ejaculate and each person that talked about that explained it as a very abysmal experience. It wasn't pleasurable in any way and that they were used and taken advantage of. And so it wasn't, wasn't a great experience. And, um, and then they were, uh, after all this was done, they were then returned. They went through the tube again. They were returned to the canoe and all four men were in the canoe. And a couple of the guys remembered through the hypnosis that um, aliens were like walking their canoe. The aliens were in the water. All four guys are in the canoe and the aliens are kind of like walking their, their canoe over like to the water. And, and, uh, you know, I don't know if they're holding it or, you know, doing the Jedi mind trick right. on it or, or what they were doing, but but uh, um, uh, three of the guys got out of the boat and stood on shore. And one of them stayed in the canoe, but it was pulled up on shore. And all they remember is looking up at this UFO. And then it finally like took off, you know, and became a pinpoint of light. And that's when, that's when their memory, their conscious memory came back. And they're like, all of a sudden we're on shore, you know, but that's basically the whole experience in a nutshell. 
in my book, UFOs of Remain, uh, I go into much greater detail on everything that right. happened to him. But yeah, that, that's it in a nutshell. And you said that the individual that was helping them, his name was Ray Fowler. Yeah, Raymond Fowler. He's a, a prolific author. He's in his 80s now. Right. And a prolific author. And I've 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 referenced his work in almost all of my works. Um, and and uh he's written, geez, I don't even know how many books, but a lot. And uh, he just released a book like last year, you know. Right. So, the, yeah, I never heard gone. I never heard of him. I I, I when you yeah, said that they went stuff. to a doctor that specialized in that, I thought you were gonna say John Mack because he's he's known for doing yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, but no, not John Mack. It was Raymond Fowler. Pretty cool. And then the, you said there was a second one, a strange one, uh, had a female involved. Yeah, Can you get into yeah, that? that? Sure. Her name was Wendy C. Allen, and this also took place in like the mid seventies. And oh, by the way, I'm sorry, she, I don't mean to cut you off. No, that, the incident happened in 1976. I looked it up. By the way, <laughs> oh, sweet, thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Wendy C. Allen, that happened in the mid seventies as well. And at that time, she was like six, seven, eight years old. And she was living in Old Orchard Beach. And Old Orchard Beach is a southern Maine coastal town. Yeah, right on the water. And when she was, you know, that age, her and her cousin were in the woods and they were collecting like some water and stuff to like bring back to the house. Because they were kind of making like a little makeshift pond and like a garden area by the home. And they said while they were in there, they saw this white monkey looking creature up in a tree and it was like five feet tall and it looked amphibious you know uh, like a lizard person but all white but it was in the tree so it kind of made them think it was like a monkey you know the way it was kind of positioned in the tree and it was kind of high up there and it started speaking to them telepathically and it was really kind and kind of jokey and seemed to have maybe a young mind or maybe it was knowing how young the girls were, it knew to communicate with them and oh, excuse me, it knew to communicate with them in that way, you know, but so the girls said uh, they told this creature that they wanted to go get their parents and come back and show them, you know, and so they could all meet and the white monkey told him, told them to like bring back some bananas, you know? <laughs> so the, the girls were like, okay. So they ran home they told their folks what was going on and the folks were like okay but yeah we'll we'll indulge this so they went back to this you know swampy area and uh, uh before they left wendy who's the 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 story this the, the person the story is about she grabbed a handful of bananas <laughs> for the white monkey and when they got there it was gone and nobody the the adults were like okay you pulled a prank on us blah blah, blah. and they're like no the two both girls were like no no this really happened this really happened and so two days went by and they were going back to the swamp all the time trying to see the white monkey again and it, it wouldn't come out and so finally one of the girls not wendy said we made it up it was a joke and wendy's like what are you doing like no we did see this thing so what ended up happening then is that this actually turns into a really sad case of mental illness and child abuse and Wendy from like eight years old to, I think it was like her mid thirties. She claimed that this, um, white monkey, her, uh, he, they befriended one another because she would go into the swamp by itself and it would show itself to her. 
and they they became friends and it was an alien it said it was an alien and it was an amphibious alien and it was over 300 years old and his ufo crashed into the atlantic ocean right off the coast of maine like 300 years ago and he had been discovered by various humans throughout the decades and he would eventually escape you know so he's escaped every time but he remembers certain times of american history which is kind of interesting and uh um and he said his name was italy e-t-i-o-l-e that's what he said his name was and he was, you know, like five feet tall and just super duper white and had scars all over himself because he would get captured and tortured, you know, cause they didn't know what it was. And, uh, but again, he would eventually escape. So, uh, Wendy said that they would meet, uh, privately all the time. And this thing would like defend her and like defend her honor and would do things in the town. Cause he knew people were being mean to her. And so it would do things secretly, like in the middle of the night to like fuck with the townsfolk, you know, and, and would report back to Wendy and all this stuff. And she claimed that she even wrote a book about it and it's called for fear of little men. And, uh, uh so this whole book is about her and Italy's um, relationship, And then it was like 10 years later, maybe even a little earlier, she completely backpedaled and said it wasn't an alien. She's never said it was an alien. He's actually a little Jewish guy who was held in a concentration camp, uh, you know, during that time and that he escaped and made his way to Maine and had been living in the woods like a hermit. And the reason he looks so weird is that he was tortured, you know, with acid being thrown on his skin and he had all these scars and he looked weird, you know, like his nose was burned off and stuff. And that it's rude that people call it an alien, but she's the one that said he was an alien for like all these years and even wrote a book about it. So, so weird. And again, I'm leaving all this crazy stuff out, but during this whole time, uh, Wendy's life at home was not good. Her mother hated her and treated her like shit and would often abuse her. And that she was kept in this room and locked in this room and the room didn't have, um, it had a dirt floor and the walls like had holes all over it. So it'd constantly get rain and snow in there and rats and all this awful stuff. So she was treated like shit constantly, but she's alive and well to this day and is still posting online. And her name is Wendy C. Allen and she has blogs all over the place from skidoo which i think something else bought skidoo s-q-u-i-d-o-o was the name of like this blog and then also tumblr but she has she has her own website so google wendy c allen and you can read all about this stuff it's massively uh insane and massively fascinating and i wrote i dedicated an entire chapter in my book to her and um you know, even though it's crazy and there's probably some mental illness and definitely some child abuse, I wanted to share the story and I wanted to share both sides of it, you know, and, and, you know, it's up for the reader to decide, but. Well, is she aware that you, you did that? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. That's so yeah, strange. That's so strange. Yeah, that is- it's super strange. And I tried contacting her, um, over 10 years ago when I was first writing this story and she never got back to me. And, right. um, then I, uh, in, this year I'm re-releasing UFOs over Maine. It's the 10th year anniversary. And I actually completely rewrote the entire book and added like 150 more encounters. It's crazy. Oh man. That's awesome, dude. Yeah. It's a tome of a book. It's like 445 pages. It's crazy. And the Wendy C Allen chapter is expanded much more than the original book. 
So there's all this extra information in there. And she would not get back to me again this time about trying to talk to her, interview her about the stuff, but she made it pretty clear in later blog posts that she refuses to, she hates UFOs, refuses to talk about them. So I knew it was a long shot, but I think your story, I think your story deserves to be told, you know? Yeah. You gave it a shot, but it could be that the reason why she doesn't like that probably, uh, is traumatic to her. So she doesn't want to relive it probably. So for sure. All right, dude. So listen, you wrote a book called Granite Skies about an individual called Mike Stevens. And I wanted to kind of go into that. Like, who was Mike Stevens? What was his experiences? But first and foremost, how did you encounter the the situation in order to write a book? Yeah, so uh, I met Mike Stevens from just being uh, on the UFO author circuit in new england <laughs> and there is a circuit believe it or not and it's it, we're kind of all lumped in together like paranormal so like bigfoot authors and ghost authors and ufo authors we all kind of know each other you know and, and we run in similar circles and we all like give talks and presentations at similar places you know and go to similar conferences in, in the area and mike stevens um is an experiencer down in new hampshire and he's uh, been heavily involved in the UFO field because he's an experiencer. He's, he wants to help other experiencers. So he started an organization where he helps um, experiencers through their abduction cases, you know, and they have uh, 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 groups uh, kind of like, um, uh, let me try to say here, like support groups. And uh, he'll work with groups or he'll work with people individually. And it's just about really just getting through just surviving the abduction scenario because it's very traumatizing to a lot of people. And he knows firsthand because he's been through the, the shit with it. So he tries to help people. And because of that, he was in this circuit of people that I would encounter from time to time. And when I would be down in New Hampshire giving talks or, you know, doing my thing down there, people would be like, have you talked to Mike Stevens yet? And like, have you heard his story yet? I'm like, well, I've heard bits and pieces, but no, not the whole thing, you know? And, and uh, I met Mike and he was very friendly, nice guy. He even booked me to come down and, and speak at a place that, that he was involved with booking people and all that good stuff. And, um, uh, one time when I was down there, he showed me this amazing picture and it was at this camp that he was staying at and there was this cone of light coming from the sky and like a game camera captured it. And so there's like a deer there and this cone of light coming from somewhere above. It makes no sense. Cause it's just out like in the woods and there's a cone right. of light coming from above, you know, shining down and the game camera captured it. And it's just a, a compelling picture. So I'm like, okay, people keep telling me, you know, that I need to hear your story and all that stuff. Like, okay, tell me about this picture. So he tells me about the picture. I'm like, holy shit. I was like, we should talk more. I'm in the middle of like four projects, but let's talk more. And he's like, okay. So we end up having like two really long phone calls and he tells me everything. I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, uh, what are your thoughts on me writing a book about all of your experiences? And he's like, well, that's pretty insane. And he wanted to make sure you know, I, I came at it from a, you know, uh, a good, from good intentions, you know? And, and I agree. I was like, yeah, I, that's how I want to come at it from. And, um, 
So he agreed and he and I were like in lockstep the entire way. I kept him abreast of all the business side of it on trying to get the book published. And, and he would just constantly feed me all these stories. And we had two really long form interviews, one down in New Hampshire, and then one down in Southern Maine, Kennebunkport maybe. And uh, you know, where we, I interviewed him for like three or four hours at a time. And um, so I got his entire story. And even after that, he would call me and tell me about uh, new things that had happened to him. Uh, sometimes I'd have to call him so he could clarify stuff about past stories he told me. And uh, when it was all said and done, I had written the book about him in like six months. It, it, you know, it just went like that. And this weird thing happened while I was writing the story. He and I became like, like, like brothers in war and not to minimize war, but that's just how, how emotional it was, you know? Right. It, like it was a shared experience because I've had my own experiences, you know, and, and he has, his experiences have caused him great trauma in his life, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. I have those things, same things in my life, but aliens didn't cause, them, you know, right. but our, but we, we, we still have these traumas, you know, and we were kind of bonding and, and, and recognizing that in each other. And so running, parallel but in a minor sense i was telling my story through his story you know and some stuff would mirror and i would mention that in the book he was always the focal point but i would point out a few things like hey you know this is i feel this and i know why he's feeling that blah 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 and it turned into this book of like depression wanting to kill oneself and then seeing hope on the other side of it and, um, um, once it finally came out, it started resonating with a lot of people, a lot of people who maybe haven't been abducted, but understand anxiety, people that don't understand depression, but they've been abducted or, you know what I mean? And it was like this weird cross pollinating thing that was happening. And it, it, it became this, this really fascinating to me anyways, book of like hope and determination, but it was also really dark and ugly and, you know, and the background was these UFO and alien scenarios, really interesting stuff. So, so have you kept up with him? Are there any updates on him and his life? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we still talk. I think the last I talked to him was like two days ago. We still keep up to this day. Um, and he kind of goes through waves, it seems, or phases. And I would say the last six months has been like a low phase, but before that he was like, mm, I saw this mm, and I saw that. And, and uh, he was um, um, walking in the woods one night and he's like, how the hell did I get here? Oh, like, missing time. <laughs> like, like, yeah, yeah. And that happens all the time to him. And it's very right. frustrating and scary. But one of the latest ones, like a year and a half ago with the missing time, he's in the woods and all of a sudden he's in a different area. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, just leave me alone, you know? Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, like, like this, yeah. Like this hasn't been fun for him, you know? Right. And um, his family they could talk about ghosts all day long and you know, there's haunted houses in their background and stuff, but nobody would talk about UFOs. But after Mike's book came out or after Mike started really getting heavily into ufology and, you know, making the support group and all this stuff, his parents and people in the family started saying, well, this happened when I was young and this happened to your uncle. And then your grandfather said this. And, and he started realizing that UFOs have been a big part of his entire family. Just nobody really talked about it you know, until he started becoming a vocal about it. So it was kind of like a cathartic thing for the entire family, which is great. You know? Right. Yeah. They say 
for some it's generational yeah like the, yeah absolutely like the gen like a i guess it's a maybe a genetic thing where they get targeted and then it follows the whole yeah. family you know yeah. and there's weird. some people that that claim to know that you know it's about bloodlines or it's about right you know something specific i don't know <clears throat> that stuff to be true but what i've seen a common thread i've seen is generational familial for some reason yeah okay so you you did this documentary that i absolutely love called otherworldly on board um yeah. and it chronicles uh shauna but primarily josh and his experiences yeah. and the reason is because like I understand what Josh is going through. I've had my own experiences, so his are yeah. very similar to mine. Um, can you get into that, like the project, how you met them? Sure, yeah. And talk about the project. Yeah. Uh, and, and just to recap a little bit, like you guys do are very similar and um, you share, you were kind enough to come on my podcast and share a lot of the stories that have happened to you. And it's actually one of my most listened to episodes. So that's, that's very cool for both. Oh, that's of us. awesome. Yeah. 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 So thank you very much for. No, no worries, man. Did anybody comment and say, Hey, I've had, I've been through that too. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. But anyway, um, <clears throat> So Shauna and Josh, I was actually doing an event at the location that Mike Stevens has in, or had in New Hampshire. And he had that with Andy Kidd and Valerie LaFosso, like they all kind of ran it, but it was Andy Kitt's place anyway. So we were doing an event there for a different documentary. <clears throat> so we like gave a little bit of a presentation, me and this filmmaker, his name's Bill Brock. We did this uh, presentation and then we were soliciting. Uh, people for their stories. And if they volunteered and were willing to tell their story on camera, we went to a different room and filmed them telling their stories. Uh, before that day came, we were sending out email. Uh, no, uh, sorry. We were sending out Facebook reminders that, Hey, we're going to be in New Hampshire. If you want to come tell us your story, blah, blah, blah. So Shauna had been one of the people who sent me some of her stories, but she didn't make it to that thing we had in in new hampshire and we went ahead and made this documentary and we didn't use shauna but i kept in contact with her because i thought her story is really interesting and uh, i was wondering if she was going to be willing to let me share them in a in a future book you know so her and i kept in touch and she kept sharing stuff with me and she goes you know my husband he's had some encounters and experiences too and we've actually we've had these encounters like since childhood we didn't know each other then but you know after we got together and started sharing our childhood we had a lot of similar events happen and then as adults and now that we're together we're having experiences together now i'm like holy shit i was like i should come down there and talk to you guys you know she's like sure so we set up a time for me to go down there and i went down and talked to him and we had like a four-hour conversation in their home and, and, uh, lovely people. And about two hours into the conversation, Shauna or Josh, I forget which one. I think it was Josh though. He goes, Oh, um, uh, did we show you any of the pictures or video? I'm like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah, we have, we have pictures and video of all this stuff. I'm like, what? You got to show me this stuff. So the next two hours was them showing me all this footage that they had of like pictures of UFOs and, and video of lights in the sky and strange EVPs. And I was like, oh my God, like this, your story isn't meant for a book. We got to tell it visually. 
would you guys be interested in me telling your story via a documentary? And they were apprehensive, you know, cause that means getting on camera and telling a story and, you know, so they had a lot of questions and concerns. So I was like, let me leave you guys discuss it and we'll talk in the next few days, blah, blah, blah. So they talk it over. They call me, I address all their concerns and they feel comfortable with me to be like, you know what? Yeah, let's do it. So we set up a date for me to go back down and it's just a one day shoot. And I get all the Josh's stories. I get all the Shauna's stories. And then I take the footage home. And then that's when the real work begins, at least on my end and piecing together this documentary and trying to tell this story. And I realized like while I was interviewing them on camera, while I was interviewing them before the camera that they really like love got them through a lot of this because they had each other. Something was scary, but they had each other. Something was scary, but they had the other one, you know, and it was just a really beautiful thing to see. So I kind of built this story about these really strange encounters that they had on top of the, this parallel love story between the two of them and how they helped the, they helped each other through these scary scenarios, you know, so that they can survive and keep coming out on top and sharing these stories with more and more people. So people know they're not so alone and on top of it, you know, love is real, <laughs> you know? So, right. So that's kind of like the crux of what the whole thing is about. Some of the stories that included missing time, it included um, this really weird scenario where Shauna and Josh got home one night, they had been out um, having dinner and when they got home, Josh got out of the car and there was a UFO above the house. And Josh goes, do you see that? He's like, I've got to lie down. And she's like, what? So she's holding the takeout food, you know, like what they didn't finish in her hands. And she's about to go inside. So he's like, I got to lay down and look at this. So he lays down on the grass and he's looking up at this UFO, which is an odd thing to do odd behavior. She goes inside and the next thing, the next thing Josh knows, Sean is nowhere to be found. So he's like, what the hell? So he kind of snaps out of whatever weird behavior he's doing. And he goes inside and he's like, Shauna, Shauna. And he checks all the rooms and he's like, what the hell? And then he, his phone starts ringing and he's like, hello. <laughs> and it's Shauna. And she's like, ah, blah, blah. and he's like, what? <laughs> and then the phone hangs up and he's like, what the hell? So the phone rings again and she's like, I'm outside like <laughs> and like laughing and really just not being herself, not making any sense. But he realized that she's outside. So he goes through the sliding glass doors to the outside in their backyard and into the woods. And now he's looking for Shauna and he's yelling her name and he's running through the woods trying to find her. And he all of a sudden realizes that he's like 80 yards out in the woods and he runs past her. And he's like, whoa. And he stops and he goes back. And Shauna is there kind of like with her knees up to her chest. And she's leaning against a tree, like sitting down, leaning against a tree. And she's just like kind of giggly and dazed. And, and he's like, what are you doing? What happened? And she's like, I don't know. Like Josh laid down to look at the UFO. Next thing they know, Shauna is out in the woods. And she's like 80 yards from the house. It was freaking weird. But that's just one of like, you know, 50 weird things that happened to him, you know? Yeah. That's that documentary. The way that it's filmed, everything is, is an awesome documentary. 
I appreciate um, any updates on them. Have you kept up with them at all? Yeah, yeah, definitely uh, keep up with them. Uh, there was a thing like, I think it was a year or two after the documentary came out, maybe a year. And because uh, the documentary came out in 2019. So I think it was 2020. And um, Shauna sent me these pictures of her back. And it kind of looked like um, burn marks in, in, in like a grid pattern. And I don't know if you're familiar with the Falcon UFO incident, but it's where this guy got kind of like burned by his exhaust chest? on his chest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it looked just like that. It was wow. fucking wild, but it was on her back. It almost like if she had sat in a uh, um, a lawn chair with this pattern and got sunburned, you know, just in those squares. That obviously didn't happen, but but it was kind of sore to the touch and they appeared one morning and then they slowly went away over time. So they, they sent me pictures of that. Shauna would wake up with, um, they would both wake up with bruises on like the, their inner thighs, you know, and they hadn't had rough sex or anything that, you know, could explain it. Uh, Oftentimes Shauna would wake up exhausted. Josh would wake up exhausted, but you know, nine, 10 hours had gone by. So they should have gotten some sort of, you know, sleep in there somewhere, right. but they feel like they kind of woke up, but they've been up all night, you know? And, uh, um, God, I can't, can't remember everything, but, but yeah, still keep up with them. Still talk to them to this day. So, yeah, that's crazy brother. Yeah. Um, okay. So between your book, Granite Skies, um, otherworldly or more UFOs yeah. over Maine, your own experiences, the stuff that you've kept and you held on to, the the articles, yeah. the books that you've bought, and the fact that now the government is willing to quote unquote reveal that UFOs do exist. I want to know from you personally, do you really believe that there's aliens from another planet that would come here to this planet to even mess with us in any sort of way? Or is that something that you believe the government is making up and they're the ones doing it, but maybe some sort of advanced technology that they, we don't know about. Like, what are your thoughts on the whole thing? Because I've kind mm-hmm. of taken a step back, even with sure. my own experience on how I look at it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say my theories throughout the years have definitely changed, you know, and if you would have asked me two or three or four years ago, it would have been different, but today in this moment, um, First of all, I want to say that the government has never once said aliens and UFOs are real. What they're doing is entertaining the thought of people coming forward to share these stories and they're agreeing to look into it. So that's cool, but they're not saying that it's real. Every time a report is requested, you know, and they have these press conferences or not a press conference, but they have these, you know, hearings um, to, to reveal some of these reports or they just release the report which it's like pulling teeth for them to do. They say a whole lot of nothing, you know? So I feel like even though the government is kind of putting a a good step forward, they're still kind of up to their old shenanigans, no matter what. And it doesn't seem to matter which president we have. They're they're still in this weird agenda that has nothing to do with political parties, in my opinion. Second. um, Yeah. I do think some sort of, alien species or multiple species are coming to earth or already are a part of the earth, uh, or there's an interdimensional thing happening and we are busy being visited by something. I don't know if that is your, 
little gray alien or if they just look like us and they step in and out of portals you know but they're they're non-human i don't know what it entails but i feel like something is coming here and it's visiting people and it's manipulating people in a bad way uh, I think sometimes they are manipulated in a good way. I think like people, there's probably good and bad species of whatever the hell these things are. But um, I could not definitively say what they are or what they want or where they come from. They're either interdimensional, they've already been here, like they're coming from within um, or they're coming from the stars somewhere. I don't know. Or maybe it's a combo of all of it. Uh, you know, I don't know. But uh, right. I know it's kind of a vague response, but it's a vague topic. Yeah, it's a yeah. <laughs> you know? There's no definitives. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah the no only like I've been doing, I've been interviewing people for like 25 years now. I'm old as fuck now. I keep forgetting, but I've been <laughs> interviewing people for like 25 years, and the only thing I know now is nothing. Right. I know nothing right. except weird shit is happening to people. That's the only thing I know. And I love cataloging it. I think there should be some sort of historical record. So my books and podcasts and documentaries are a part of that cataloging process, you know? So what are your thoughts on an individual, like a David Grush? I think David Grush has some incredible stories to tell. We have yet to see any evidence of it. You think they'll let him talk or you think they'll. I, I don't know if he's a bullshitter or not. And he's with, he's kind of partnering, partnering with Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp and George Knapp, God love him. He's an OG, but boy, I think he's, I think he's falling under the spell of Jeremy Corbell. I'm not a big fan of that dude. And, um, David Grush has kind of fallen in with him. And I feel like it then becomes UFO entertainment as opposed to actual like UFO disclosure. So my preference is to watch that stuff at an arm's length because I'll consume it all. Right. But at an arm's length. And then I will continue to interview experiencers. Right. Or I'm face to face or however they're most comfortable with me interviewing them, either like this or just through Facebook Messenger, maybe email or face to face. I'd rather stick with experiencer stories, you know, because um, they have nothing to hide, nothing to prove, a whole lot to lose. Somebody like David Grush, all of a sudden he's making fifteen hundred dollars, two thousand, twenty-five, you know, uh, ten thousand, like per for speaking appearances. You know what I mean? And, and and even though he's telling a really incredible story that I really, really want to believe, there's been absolutely no evidence to back right. it up, and it sucks. Yeah. And I want I want to believe him, but there's no evidence yet. See, that's what pisses me off, is because yeah. uh. Like you said, Jeremy Corbell, like I, I didn't know who he was. He came out of nowhere. Yeah. Then he's uh he's with Bob Lazar. And then right. now he's, he's a with, bullshitter in my opinion. Yeah, and then now, he, now he's with uh Nap and now Grush. And to me, that kind of speaks of like maybe he's a handler. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's it. Comes off like a handler. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then I don't know if you were aware, because we haven't talked in a while. We did the episode, I think, almost a year and a half ago, two years. Uh oh yeah, sure. You also had that group, uh What's his name? Corey Good, David Wilcox. Oh God, yeah. And, yeah. and uh, what's the other guy that used to hang out with uh, Stephen Greer, the bodyguard guy that said yeah. he worked on aliens' bodies? Um, yeah. starts with an E. But just stuff like that, man, muddies the water so bad. Oh, it, it muddies Emory it so Smith. Bad. Thank you very much. Oh my God, <laughs> I kept thinking Eric. I'm like, no, no. It's yeah, Emory Smith. And I it, and I believed the Emory Smith part. 
I didn't really believe Wilcox was Wilcox says that he was the reincarnation of Edgar Casey. He was yeah, just crazy and, like that. And good has a ton of suspicious stuff that right. I personally have a problem with, you know, uh, and Grush is even hanging out with, um, I say hanging out, but is doing appearances with some of these other guys, uh, these other Navy guys or military guys that I actually do believe their stories. They're, they're not looking for fanfare, right? you know, and, and he's kind of getting lumped in with them and that kind of muddies the water too. Cause those other guys are like, Oh, well, we're with another military guy. Well, that military guy is with like Corbell and I don't know. It just all gets muddy and I don't like it. That's it gets muddied, man. Why can't it just be just yeah. cut and dry? I know. You know. I know. I know. Anyway, um, so the last time that we t- that we talked, uh, you you were talking about some of your personal experiences, not uh, writing or doing a book, mm-hmm. but more you going out personally and doing your own investigations. Yeah, yeah. The last one that we, the last two that we talked about in the last episode, one was the winged creature that you saw outside your house, yeah, and then uh. The other one was this entity that you can see with your naked eye, but when you use night vision goggles, it disappeared yeah. and you kept flipping back and forth. Yeah. Have you done any physical investigations after that? Oh yeah, definitely have done a bunch after that, but Talk. I haven't done I, I haven't <laughs> done them like lately. Right. Um but um there was another winged creature incident that happened in 2017. Okay. The previous one I talked about was like in shit. Oh six, oh seven, maybe, okay. maybe earlier, but the other one was 2017, and um, it was kind of like a Mothman figure, and and I had found this witness who had this experience with this winged creature, and um, it's in a small town, not too far from me. It's like 45 minutes away from me, and he told me his whole experience, which was he was like walking home. He was a teenager at the time. He's walking home, and he hears these weird beeping, squeaking type sounds. Then he sees like a big shadow go across the tar you know like by his feet and so that caused him to look up because he realized something was flying over him and he looked up and the squeaking or whatever was coming from that thing and it was like this huge thing with this huge wingspan like 25 feet like as big as a Cessna oh shit and he said its body was like four feet long and its head was this really weird shape and it had tubes coming out of it really just the oddest description and he actually did a, uh, excuse me, he did a drawing of it for me and it's in one of my books and it just, it looks freaking weird, but it had like bat-like wings and it was kind of translucent. Its skin was kind of translucent. He could like see uh, kind of like veins or, you know, stuff through its skin. Very weird. So since that area is very close to me, I decided to go do an investigation of that area. And I went out for two overnight investigations back to back in the first night, not a whole lot happened. I did hear, um, I was in like this area where there's like a, a pond and I was sitting on this bench and my flashlight couldn't penetrate the darkness far enough, but I kept hearing like walking in the water. It was like something bipedal walking in the water and I'm yelling, hello. Like, why is there a person walking in the, you know, right. it's like one at one, 1 AM and you wouldn't just be walking in the shallow water. Like I've been there during the day, you know, it's, it's fairly shallow. And um, so I'm trying to shine my light and I even used my headlights at one point and I just couldn't penetrate the darkness far enough to, to, to see what it was, but something was walking and I had to, in my mind, chalk it up to a deer because I couldn't see anything else and nothing was responding to me and you know 
So the next night I go to this swampy area and this swampy area is where this kid says this thing flew into. And, uh, so I am behind, uh, his apartment building. He said, this thing kind of like flew up over his apartment building and went into the swampy area. So now I'm down there and it's hot as hell. It's the middle of the summer and mosquitoes are bad. So the windows are up and then the windows are down and the bugs get bad again. So the windows go back up. But the car is completely off, so there's no AC. There's nothing to distract me. It's pitch black, and um, I see what looks like red eyes out in the swamp, and it's like 10 feet up in the air. There's this large tree out there, and it's got this huge branch, and that branch is like 10, 11 feet up, and the lights, the eyes are right under this branch, so I know that whatever that is, it's tall, you know, and the eyes were weird, man. Like they would just like, come on. It's not like they closed like normal. They would just like, come on. And then they would blink out, you know, like just go off. And I saw that three, four five, six times. And I couldn't make heads or tails of it. So all I could do was document it. I couldn't take a picture of it. I didn't have, uh, you know, a good enough camera to, you know, like capture these two little <laughs> red lights in the, in the blackness, you know? So I went back down there the next day when it was daylight and there was no tracks or anything. Like you could see my tire marks and all that stuff. And I wasn't about to walk out into the swamp, you know, like I, I appreciate a good investigation, but I'm not, I'm not going to the swamp. I got you. But yeah. I, can, <laughs> I can see the tree and I'm looking at the tree. And I'm like, that's pretty high. That is, that's 10, 11, 12 feet high. And as I'm looking at that branch, I see red lights again. I'm like, oh, fuck. I think there's a road beyond the swamp that I'm not aware of because I'm not from that town. And it's cars going over a hill and I'm seeing brake lights. Right. And I'm like, oh, is that what I saw last night? Although it's 1, 2 a.m. in a very tiny town, you know, so it there's not a whole lot of people out at that time, you know, but since it could have been brake lights, I had to chalk it up to, okay, it probably wasn't a creature or I can't definitively say that I saw this creature, but two different nights back to back, two kind of strange things happened that I couldn't verify, you know, but they were weird, you know, right. but that's, but that's something that I went out and did. And then and anything after that, any other, like, yeah, there's gotta be, oh yeah. I went to, uh, this one was like more of a ghost thing but there's like this haunted uh, railroad area that's like in the middle of Maine. And um, I took my co-host Kyle uh, down there with me and it's said to be haunted by this person named bicycle Larry and bicycle Larry <laughs> was like a transient who would ride around town on his bicycle and everybody knew he was on social security and he'd get his check once a month. And, he kind of had his routines. He got his check. And so you knew he was going to, you know, go to the Rite Aid or go to wherever and get his, you know, things that he needed and blah, blah, blah. Right. And he was a very friendly guy. People would try to be friendly with him. And um, what ended up happening to Bicycle Larry is he befriended this other guy. And I forget his name now, but they, they befriended one another. And this other friend learned of the social security checks. And the next thing you know, bicycle Larry winds up dead and mm. he's, th he's thrown in this Creek right off this bike trail that runs through town. And then this other guy 
he ends up calling his sister or maybe calls somebody else and then offs himself. So he kills himself after killing this guy. Cause I don't think he could live with the guilt, you know? Right. So there are these two deaths, one a murder, one a suicide associated with this haunting. And it mostly takes place in this bicycle trail. And part of this trail kind of goes deep into some thick woods. So I went down there to go investigate it. And I brought a field recorder with me so I could record everything that happened and use it as a podcast episode. So, um, I'm, I'm down there with my own bike. Cause I like to bicycle around I bring my bike down there and uh, I start riding the trail and I stop and I have some EVP sessions and I keep riding, have some EVP sessions. And when I got home and listened to everything, um, there was some weird stuff. I think I caught a gunshot with a screen afterwards Mm. and that's on the podcast episode. Uh, I definitely caught some sort of tonal stuff, but I couldn't make out any words. Um, I definitely got some weird feelings on the trail. I was by myself. It was the middle of the day, but I got some felt like being watched feelings on the trail. I was in a part of the trail that's deep in the woods. So I'm like a mile and a half, something like that, maybe a mile into the woods. And I, I I see this makeshift tent. It's made with like a tarp and some lean tos, you know? And, but, but it looks abandoned. So I'm like, okay, so I'm looking at, it, but it's off the trail, like 20 feet off the trail. And I'm not going to go fuck with somebody's stuff. You know what I mean? Like yeah. could be somebody sleeping in there, you know? So I'm just walking along and then I hear what my mind tells me is a duffel bag being unzipped and then metal clanking. So to me in that moment, it sounded like a serial killer was getting their knives out to come get me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, Oh fuck. So I like got on my bike and took off <laughs> and didn't look back. Oh, I gosh. stopped. <laughs> I stopped maybe like 50, 60, 70 yards down the trail and finally stopped and like turned around to see if anybody was like running after me and they were like wearing a hood or something crazy, <laughs> but I, I didn't see anything, but it freaked me the fuck out, man. Cause it happened where that lean to was, and it sounded like it totally sounded like a bag being unzipped because it wasn't a tent. I didn't hear a tent. It was a tarp. Right. It almost also sounded like if somebody had a rope hanging up in a tree and you were pulling it down and it made that sound, oh, you know, as yeah. pulling, you know, so it was something, something to that effect, you know? Right. So anyways, that was, that was my experience with bicycle Larry and, uh, and I, you know, made a whole episode out of it. So people can check that out. That's cool, brother. The Universal Dialect Show will return. But first, a word from our sponsor. In a world where style knows no boundaries, where self-expression reigns supreme, there is a rise creations. Introducing Arise Creations, the ultimate destination for fashion-forward individuals seeking affordable, unisex apparel that caters to every unique style. Arise Creations brings you an exceptional collection of unisex fashion essentials, from trendy tops that blend style and comfort, to versatile bottoms and footwear that add an extra layer of sophistication. 
we've got you covered from head to toe. Arise Creations is more than just a clothing line. We strive to create an inclusive space where everyone can find fashionable and affordable pieces that reflect their unique personality. With indelible designs, we ensure that anyone can confidently wear our products, breaking down barriers while embracing individuality. But that's not all. Arise Creations is proud to be affiliated with the Universal Dialect Show, a groundbreaking podcast that explores the worlds of music, the paranormal, art, fashion, and beyond. Join the conversation on YouTube, BitChute, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. Arise Creations is committed to making fashion accessible to all. We believe that style should know no bounds and everyone deserves to feel confident and empowered in what they wear. With our affordable prices and diverse product range, we're here to help you unleash your true self. Come and unleash your style and embrace your individuality. Arise Creations, where fashion meets affordability and self-expression. Please visit our website today to explore our collection and be a part of the fashion revolution. Arise Creations and the Universal Dialect Show, empowering you to create your own destiny. Head to www.etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Arise Creations 73. Again, that's www.etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Arise Creations. So that's A R I S E. C-R-E-A-T-I-O-N-S, the number seven, and the number three, and bring your look to new heights. Cool, brother. Um, <laughs> I want to say for sure in the last two years this has been like a new craze not that it's new but it's been amping up this dog man werewolf thing. oh yeah 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 are, 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 have you heard anything out there in maine absolutely that? yeah there's there's a crazy story um for maine specifically but just so you know there's very little that scares me i'm so desensitized to so much because of all the horror movies right. and all of this like i'm constantly doing research with this stuff so i'm always i'm always in it and not a lot of stuff freaks me out there's some alien abduction stuff that freaks me out black-eyed kids really freak me out <laughs> and the and the other thing that freaks me out is dogman stories so there's a dogman story from maine and it was a pack of dogmen oh shit and and they terrorized this farmhouse and it's about an hour south of me and these people had just moved into the house and the uh, they had moved because the husband had gotten in hurt at work and couldn't work anymore and he was pretty severely hurt and uh his wife didn't like guns so you know the scenario has all their guns out in a shed outside so they're not readily available which sucks but they had this routine of sitting on the porch at night drinking coffee and watching they, they never had so much land before so they'd have this high-powered flashlight and they would watch for deer and all these other little critters you know there's like a man-made pond on their property and they would you know they liked watching all the critters. So the flashlight one night hits this eye shine. 
that's by this fence, which is by a pond. And this eye shine kind of looks like deer. And the wife who's holding the flashlight is like, that kind of, that's a weird looking deer. So the husband looks and he's like, yeah. And then all of a sudden it stands up and it stands up bipedally. And it's about seven feet tall. The next thing I knew, they see two more bits of eye shine and then they too stand up. And the wife is like, you know, shining the light on all of them and they can see the fur. They can see the ears. They can see the snout. They can see kind of like a bodybuilder type body and it freaks them the fuck out. And the, these creatures like go off running to the side of the house and they're like, well, the rock. So they run inside. <laughs> like, this is crazy. So the wife is like, you got to call the cops. So she does, he does. And the cops are like, the cops were basically like, you're crazy. Call the game wardens. <laughs> So they call the game wardens. The game wardens weren't as dismissive. They refused to come out, but they said, keep your doors locked. Don't go outside. So that made them think, do they get calls like this a lot? And there's not a whole lot they can do. So they, you know what, just stay inside. Right. So they pondered that, but they were also scared in the moment. So they kind of had to let that thought go and deal with what was happening. So he tells the wife, like eh, game wardens, cops, nobody's coming. It's just us. And they have a daughter asleep upstairs. She's an adult daughter, but she's nonetheless asleep upstairs. So he's like, I'm going to go outside and get the guns. And he's severely hurt. They're not really saying how he got hurt, but apparently he can walk. It's just not very fast. So he goes outside. She's like begging him not to, but Wait, he decides he's got to guns go. outside of the house. Yeah, yeah. She didn't like <laughs> guns in the house. So they were kept in a shed. Oh my God. Ne- next to the house. I know. So she's begging him not to, but he's like, I got to do it. So she goes upstairs to be with the daughter. He goes outside. So now he's on the porch. And he's like, okay, where are these fuckers? And he starts making his way down the steps and the shed's not too far. So he gets to like the bottom step of the porch and a light at this big spotlight gets shined on him. And he's like, what the fuck? It like it scares him. But then he's like, oh yeah, the motion sensor light. <laughs> All right, cool. All right. And when it comes on, it turns out the three dogmen were like very close to him. But oh. he re- he realized they didn't like the light because as soon as that light came on, they kind of scattered. Oh, okay. And, and he's like, as as long as I can keep this light on, I can get to the shed and and you know everything's cool. Well, while he's figuring this out, the light goes off and he's like, fuck. So he starts like waving <laughs> his arms around. And the light comes back on, but the dogs had moved again, you know, and he's like, oh shit. And he knows his limitations. He's like, I'm not going to get to that door in time. I know it. And that light's going to come off, you know, going to go off. So he decides just to back up and go backwards up the stairs and he gets to the door and the light goes off and he can hear movement. So he's like, fuck this. And he immediately gets inside, locks the door. Right. So then he and the wife start hearing all sorts of clatter around the house, banging on the walls, like on the side of the house, they're in scratch marks and they go upstairs and they wake the daughter and they tell her what's going on. And she's like, what the, what are you guys talking about? And like, ends up going back to sleep. So they're like, well, at least she's up here and she's safe. We'll stay up here, you know? And so they're up there and they're looking out the window. And as they're looking out the window, they see five creatures looking back up at them. And they're like, oh shit, this is no joke. And then they all scatter again and they can hear banging. They can hear them on the roof and they don't know if 
these creatures are just fucking with them to scare them or if they truly don't know that glass is breakable or how to turn a handle or something right because nothing's busting in and these things seem strong enough to do that so they're they're not sure you know if they're just really stupid or if they're just you know scaring them the daughter ends up ends up waking up and she sees some of this activity so she's like oh wow okay i i get what's happening now so they all just kind of like hunker down against the wall for the entire night they barely get some sleep i think they finally kind of like all pass out and they wake up and it's like 5 30 in the morning and the sun's just coming up you know and they look out the window and they're not hearing anything and they think the daylight has drawn them back out into the woods so they go outside and they see footprints everywhere they see claw marks everywhere and they're like okay something has definitely happened here this is this is crazy and they decided then and there that they're going to immediately start looking for another house. They, they're not, they're <laughs> I would imagine, yeah. Yeah. So it was like just a couple months later and they were able to move out. Well, last year, my girlfriend and I, like it, it's, it's known locally what the address is. So we went out there to go check it, it it's out. It's in Maine? It's in Maine, yeah. What, what part? Do you know, like, can you tell me the town or is it like? Yeah, it's, it's um, outside of Newport, Maine. Okay. Is what is what I'll say. Uh, actually, I'll tell you the actual town because that's pretty well known. It's Palmyra. Palmyra is the name of the town. Okay. P A L M Y R A. Okay, because I was thinking of moving. I'm not moving there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't want to go to Palmyra, Maine. But anyway, uh, so we went to the Dogman Farm to like check it out, and it turns out there's like a business being run out of there now, and I think it's like a farming type of business, you know. So we didn't want to get on the land. So there's a church funnily enough next door <laughs> so we parked at the church and kind of like like weirdos walked along the road and we're taking all of these pictures of the property and everything and, and and checking everything out and it's interesting right across the road is a wildlife management sanctuary mm. so it's like woods that can't be hunted which is really interesting right. and we ended up seeing two tracks of something big walking into the woods from the road dude and and the footprints were big but it had melted over the last few days because we had had a storm and then it was we were out there like four days later so plenty of time to melt so i don't know how distorted those footprints got you know what i mean with the melt but all i know is that we saw two big tracks leading (laughs) into the woods and it was across the street from this goddamn dog dogman farm we're like oh shit it's some crazy some craziness it's just you know interesting to see that while you're there you're not expecting anything you know what i mean but yeah um so i'm gonna tell you something right so last year i think yeah end of april beginning of may i'm I'm on my way home from work and i'm very regimented in, in the things that i do i take the same road to work i take the same road back this is the old house because where i'm at right now is not the same house where i interviewed you that house i owned we wound up selling it so this is before we sold it so i would take the same route uh for about like maybe three weeks they were doing uh work on the roads so we had this instance where three lanes turned into two and then sometimes to one so it was causing like crazy traffic and i was getting home like six o'clock and i was it was really pissing me off yeah yeah. so one day i was like i I don't want to do this anymore so there was a street that was coming up that I knew I could take a shortcut. So if anybody wants to look it up, if you get a chance to look it up on a map, look up 
Rouse Road, R-O-U-S-E Road in Central Florida. It's near uh, uh, University of Central Florida. If you look at it on a map, it's there's a park and it's nothing but swampy wooded area. And then in between some of the swampy area, you have like little housing developments here and there. Sure. But it's not like out of the question for something to be in that those swampy areas moving around without being really being seen sure. because it, it just runs across the whole Rouse Road. There's a water source because you have a swamp that's actually in a park called Jay Blanchard Park. So anyway, so I take the shortcut and make a left on this road called Buck Road to, to eventually hit Rouse. But somebody else had the same idea as me. Right. There was a car that was in front of me, like a cream, like like light brownish car that was in front of me, about 20 car lengths ahead of me that took the same right on. Uh, it's called Dean Road. And then as I make my right, it's making its left on Buck Road. So it's doing the exact same thing I'm doing. It, it It's probably the same, it's same type of person that's like, I'm tired of the yeah. traffic. I'm, I'm going this route. So as we're driving down Buck Road, this car is like significantly ahead of me. I notice it slowed down almost to a stop and then just take off. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking I've seen plenty of people on their phones messing around, uh, you know, swerve, you know, in and out of lanes, slow down, you know, things like that. So I'm thinking this person was distracted by either the passenger that was with them, if they had one, or they were on their phones. So as I'm driving up to the same area, something told me to look out my passenger side window. So as I'm driving right on my right hand side, it's a wall of like just trees and forest. But every once in a while, it opens up and you can kind of see in a little bit. So as I get into this area, there's there's nothing but a wall of trees. And then it opens up into like this, this like meadow. And there's something standing there, cinnamon brown, at least eight feet tall. Jesus. And the only thing that I can, that I, the only description that I get out of it is ears with tufts of hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Hands with, not paws, but hands with claws. Yeah. And it's just standing there like, oh, shit, you, you can see me <laughs> kind of deal. But this happens in li literally like seven seconds because I'm not stopping yeah. like the person in front of me. I'm I'm going like 40 miles an hour. I'm pretty much yeah. gone. But what went into my mind as all these other things are going through my mind is if that car stops, I'm going to hit it and then we're stuck. So I had to look up to make sure that the car wasn't like in front of me or I was going right. to hit it. And then I was gone. I went home. But yeah. Wow. So I don't know if it was a dog wow. man or werewolf, but I don't know anything that has pointy ears like that. That's right. bipedal because it was standing up that has claws on their hands, you know, right. could have wow. been a prop, but it wasn't <laughs> Halloween, you know, yeah, like yeah. <laughs> somebody in a costume. But I mean, I don't know that that yeah, that's a weird yeah. area for somebody to kind of play a prank yeah. like that. You yeah, know, like they would be where it's all trafficy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and it was in a meadow. It wasn't on the road or on the little, there's like a little, like, if you come to Florida, I would imagine the same thing in Maine. When you're in wooded areas, you have like maybe like a patch of, of grass that could be like a sidewalk. And then you have the road, right? Oh, sure. So after the patch of grass, that patch of grass, then you have like, you know, your woods and then you go into whatever, or, you know, the swamp or whatever. Right. Like that person would have been out more towards the road and not sort of hidden deep in there. Yeah. So I don't know what it was, but yeah, that. <laughs> Dang. That's wild, dude. It, it's, it's crazy, dude. I don't know why. Yeah. I don't know why these things happen just, to me. Just add, just add it to your list, man. <laughs> yeah. It, that, I, 
I joke that the last thing I need to see is a sea creature, and then I have bingo. I have paranormal yeah. bingo. You know, pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and you have to message me if that happens to you. Oh, <laughs> I will message you. I will. I will. All right, will. cool. Not that I'm going to go out in the sea. I'm. I'm not really a fan of going out. Like my wife wants me to go on a cruise, and I'm kind of like, oh, I don't know oh, if boy. I want to do that. But yeah. anyway, uh, no more. This last segment, uh, I want to highlight your show because, like I said, I think your show is awesome. Um, you're currently on season seven. And so we're going to start with uh, season five, episode one, uh, Jersey Devil Origins. Yeah. What, what were you able to find out? Uh, found out a lot that um, it was really a whole lot of like political, religious hot mess. And there really was no creature it all came from names and misunderstandings and um um some political drama between like ben franklin <laughs> and and uh, the family um that were in the pine barrens you know that that were the um the namesake for the the jersey devil and um yeah a whole lot of nothing in regards to an actual monster but the real story is super duper fascinating. Basically, the uh, the the Pine Barrens family and Ben Franklin had rival, um, um, like farmers' almanacs. Basically, they had two different kinds, and Ben published one, and these people published one. And the the people in the Pine Barrens they were like Quakers. And Ben Franklin was doing kind of his old thing and they would like make fun of each other. And Ben Franklin was much more humorous with this stuff where the Pine Barrens family were much more um, serious with their stuff. And then the father died and then one of the sons died and, you know, and they had um, the, the, the husband had uh, two different wives and there was a whole bunch of kids, you know, so that's where some of that mythology came from where the Jersey devil was like the 13th kid, blah, blah, blah. So anyways, a whole lot of political intrigue and infighting, and it kind of developed into this just lore. And for me, the Jersey Devil is nothing more than lore. But I say that. But in that episode, I also share some legitimate stories that witnesses had. Right. You know, and they are compelling. So is there something in the woods of the Pine Barrens? Both things could be true. Right. It could be a bullshit origin story, you know, and it's just these people, but there could also be something there. I don't know if it's a winged devil like creature, but it could be a Bigfoot. It could be a dog man. It could be a rake or, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, uh, right. but the pine barrens are, it's a lot like me and, you know, it's just deep, dark woods, you know, for miles. Right. Right. So uh, who, who knows what could be there, but, but yeah, there was even, I found out in that episode that there was a government sanctioned search for the Jersey devil. And some of the men on that government sanctioned search did find something and they said they cut off its like hoof or something like that. It's kind of a strange story, but it was a government sanctioned hunt for the Jersey devil. Pretty interesting. It happened in, I think the late 1800s, I forget right. now, but it's oh, all that's cool. I, I never knew that. That's, that's awesome information, but you know what yeah. I found out too, which is weird that I didn't know before that the pine barons have supposedly they have Bigfoot in there. There's people that have come out. Sure. That went in there looking for the Jersey Devil and they encountered Bigfoot. They instead, encountered you know? Bigfoot, yeah, yeah. Right. And what's really interesting too about the Pine Barrens, this is just kind of like a um a movie fact, <laughs> if you will. But the Blair Witch Project came out in 1999 and it was, you know, this huge success. You know, it, they shot it on a budget of like what, eighteen thousand, twenty-eight thousand dollars. Right. And made, you know, four hundred million, you know, in the 
but it was, you know, one of the first found footage movies, not the first, but one of the first that definitely kind of brought that genre into the limelight. But the same year that movie was shot, there was another movie being shot in the Pine Barrens called The Last Broadcast. And it was about the Jersey Devil. And these two guys who were, who uh, the movie was uh, uh, about these two guys who had a local public access TV show. And yeah. they wanted to film it on Halloween in the Pine Barrens, searching for the Jersey Devil, and then craziness ensues in them looking for the uh, the Jersey Devil. And it's a great fucking movie. I don't know if it's as good as Blair Witch Project, but the last broadcast about the Jersey Devil found footage. It's fucking great. I'm right. I'm right. I'm, I wrote it down. I'm gonna I'm gonna nice, check nice. that out, man. <laughs> <laughs> it might it might have even been shot a year before Blair Witch, but you know it's tough to get movies off the ground. So I think right. it took them a little longer to get it out. Yeah, that, that sounds awesome. I'm going to check that out for sure, yeah. man. And I'm so sure gonna, it's it. I, I don't know if it holds up, but <laughs> I mean, if it's like none, I don't think any of the found footage really holds up once you once you get into that genre, it's pretty much all yeah. the same, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's get into season 5, episode 15. This one really was an awesome one. The Falkville Metal Man. Oh shit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a crazy I'm Sorry, story. dude. I didn't mean to hit you with that one. <laughs> uh you know like the cops were involved man so yeah yeah this this cop he's a chief he's the chief of police greenhaw is his name and he's at home it's like 10 o'clock you know he's already had dinner you know him and his wife chilling and now he's like getting ready for bed and he gets a phone call and it's from this lady and she's like there's a goddamn ufo in the field across from my house and he's like what and she's like, yeah, you got to come over here. So, you know, Greenhaw being the chief of police, he gets his pants back on, drives out to this field that's across from this lady's house, and there's no UFO. So he's kind of doing this lap because there's like room for him to drive like in the perimeter of this field. And there's, I think, some areas in between the field he can drive. So he's like doing this lap around the field and he sees this humanoid figure that's dressed all in silver and it's just staring at him standing in the middle of the road. So he's like, what the fuck? So he puts the car in park and he steps out and he's looking at this thing. And to him, it kind of looks like an astronaut or something, you know, like, like it's covered head to toe in aluminum foil and he's looking at it. And so he slowly goes back into his car and he grabs a gun and he grabs a Polaroid camera and he ends up taking like four five, six, seven, eight shots of this humanoid figure. And then it takes off running and he's like, oh shit. So he kind of like throws the stuff back in his car. He gets back in his car. Now he's going after it. He can't keep up with it. And he's in a car. So this thing's running as fast as fuck. And finally it, it gets away. He doesn't see it anymore. So He's just left with a really strange encounter until he looks at the film and he captured what this figure was on his Polaroid camera. And you can view these pictures. It's actually the picture of the, uh, the cover for the podcast. But if you Google Falkville metal man, uh, you'll see these pictures of this weird thing that he captured. And um, a lot of people think it's bullshit, but there's a lot of people that don't because they know Greenhaw and he, they know that he was a good man of the law and wouldn't lie right. and had nothing to gain. In fact, he had a whole lot to lose. He ended up, uh, his marriage ended up falling apart. His actually, his house burned down. I, I don't know if it was some sort of curse that, was, you know, 
from seeing this thing, but he had this string of bad luck and it was awful. And, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the, the story in a nutshell and it's freaking fascinating. And the pictures are pretty cool. Yeah. I want to look those pictures up, man. Yeah. Yeah. Just Google so, Falkville metal man. And you'll see this weird metal man. Yeah, uh, aluminum foil looking alien. It's weird. Also in season five, you did this Halloween special on the Mandela effect. Um, yeah. Have you had any personal experiences? Well, first explain generally what the Mandela effect is and, and if you've had okay. any sort of personal experiences. Sure. The uh, Mandela effect is basically um, a mass forgetting or remembering of something. And I know that's really vague, but an example of that could be uh, everybody remembers that uh, the, the Berenstein Bears was spelled S-T-E-I-N at the end of Berenstein. Come to find out, it's Stain, S-T-A-I-N. There's so many people, 80% of the people that remember the Berenstain Bears remember it as Berenstain Bears. And so it's kind of like this collective memory shift, or maybe there was a dimensional shift that happened where we're in a different plane of existence now, and the thing that we thought existed exists in a just a little bit off kind of way, but it's kind of a convoluted explanation, but hopefully that <laughs> made sense to people. No, no. Cause I mean, that's basic. It's that, that's what it is. It's misremembering yeah. or thinking you yeah. remember something, but it's on a mass scale, kind of yeah, like the yeah. monopoly man with the monocle. Now, right, now right, have right. you had any experiences with Mandela at, at all? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've had experiences with some of the general ones. I remember Stein, S-T-E-I-N. I'll, Me too. I'll go, to my I'll go to my grave thinking we're in a shift because it's stain, man, stain and bears and brown. Like we would be saying shit stain or bear and stain, shit stain bears right. or some shit, like, you know, because right. we're idiot kids and that's what we would have done. Right. But, 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 but it, it was Stein, like Einstein, Frankenstein, you know, but anyway. Um, and there's a few other, um, big things like that, that, that I also remember in that way, but I have had some personal ones and one of them is fucking weird, man. And both <laughs> Kyle and I experienced it together. Oh shit. Okay. So Kyle and I lived together in this apartment and, um, across the street and down the road, just a little bit. We're talking 500 feet down the road was this big house. It was a big white house and it had this big driveway and we saw it all the time because we'd have to drive by it to get to our apartment. And sometimes we'd see that they would be doing some renovations like on the outside, you know, they did some roof work. It looks like they like replaced the porch or something one time because we lived in this apartment for years. And so we saw, you know, throughout the years, different work being done on the house. He and I are driving by one day. And there's no house and the driveway is overgrown with weeds. Like there hasn't been a house there in years. We literally stopped the car in the middle of the road and are like, what the fuck? And we're looking at this field where the house was. We had just driven by it the day before. So it's not like they tore down the house in a day. And then all these weeds grew in the driveway because the driveway was still there. You could still see the remnants of the driveway. It was a tarred driveway, it, but there was all this weed and shit going, growing up through it, you know, like an abandoned property. 
I, I have no, it's still not there. I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 we don't know what to make of it. And mm-hmm. Kyle is more of a skeptic than I can be. You know what I mean? Because there are definitely things that I'm a skeptic on. But when we both look over and this house is gone and there's weeds in the driveway, like it had been torn down 20 years ago, we didn't know what to make of it. It really fucked with us. Do you think the Mandela effect is possibly a result of what they're doing at CERN? That's interesting. Um, I think it's possible, but I also think CERN gets a bad rep. There's a lot of good scientists there doing a lot of good work. During the Mandela Effect episode, I actually researched a shit ton about CERN. And um, and, and they're very much aware, the employees are aware of the Mandela Effect. And, you know, they're like... What we're like, what we're doing, like, wouldn't affect that, you know, like, they're, and they're trying to explain it in their way. And I don't always get all of the gibberish, the scientific gibberish, you know what I mean? Which is my bad, you know? But, um, um, so I definitely had a different outlook on CERN after really thoroughly researching them during the Mandela Effect episode. But at the same time, they are doing some shit, you know, like they're creating. stuff <laughs> they're they're creating like these uh, like a black hole you, you know what i mean uh, with the the large hadron collider and they're they're they discovered the god particle you know what i mean like right. there is some significant stuff that's that's going on there and even them as scientists might not know the full ramifications because we don't know everything yet about how the world works we're still figuring out how our brains work we're still figuring out what's in the fucking ocean you know what i mean and and we're fucking with particle acceleration you know so like we could be fucking with some shit so is there something that could be happening with cern absolutely at the same time i do think people should do their due diligence and check out cern and there's some really good people that are doing some pretty incredible work there that's like to mankind's benefit right you know i wasn't aware Right, because I always thought that uh, CERN was the only hadron collider, but I, like I found out recently that there's a hadron collider in Tennessee, and it's mm-hmm. hadron colliders. Yeah, it's a hadron collider in Tennessee. It's it's a it's a on a installation that's quote unquote top secret, and there's other hadron colliders strategically around the world, and then they all do are doing essentially a lot of the same work. So I'm wondering if they're fucking with something. And that's what's causing like this craziness, like it's these suspicious. last few years. I yeah. thought it was just CERN. I mean, are they all CERN owned or are they different? No, they're independent. Oh, oh that's never good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a there's a there's a podcaster named Tony Merkel. He has a show called oh, The yeah, Confessional, yeah. and he yeah. moved to Tennessee. He's originally from Pennsylvania, and he ran into a guy that did security for this installation out in tennessee that has a a hadron collider and as far as i know tony's working on a story to kind of expose that but he's still working with the guy because the guy's not willing to talk about certain things because he can get in trouble yeah but wow like if you look it up there's a name it's um not black rock it's it's black something it's a company Uh, that's out in tennessee yeah, is it BlackRock or Blackstone? Or, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Blackstone, I think that's what it is. Because yeah, yeah. BlackRock's another company, but it, they have the same similar name. It's Black something, and they yeah. have their own Hadron Collider, and they're doing their own experiments. Yeah. But yeah, there, there's yeah. other ones right. out well, there. That's, that's fuck, we good. might have a part two on Hadron Collider episodes. <laughs> yeah, look look it up. If I find anything, yeah. I'll send it your way for sure. Yeah, please. Um, 
my own experience with Mandela Effect, I'll tell you real quick. Because mm-hmm. I was on your show. I told you about one of my experiences when I was a, like a kid. And it had to do with like me being visited by these sort of beings. Yeah. And me always thinking that it was just me either making it up or it was like some sort of dream. But I remember when I was in the military, 98 to 2002, this was like my last like year in the military. A show had come out by Steven Spielberg on TV called Taken. Okay. I remember where I was when I saw the first episode, which gave me that aha moment that something happened to me when I was a kid. I was living on base housing, still in the military. But if you go on Google and you look up Taken, the series, it happens like four or five months after I got out of the military. Yo. And it came out during like the, like, almost near the holidays, near like the new year of, I think, 2002. So how is it that I know that I was laying on the bed in base housing because we used to live off the base. And I remember we had to sign a, get on a list to get on the base to live there. And then we finally got on the base. And I remember the exact room I was in and everything. And it was, I was in the military still when it went down. Wow. And it came out four or five months later is when they yeah. say that was released. So that's, yeah, that's, that's Mandela effect right there, man. You know, bingo. I'm like, you know, another one. I'm yeah, yeah. That's another one for you. <laughs> another one. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's go real quick. Cause I know, you, you know, time and everything. Um, awesome. Season six, episode two glitches in the matrix. Yeah. Um, some people, you know, think we're living in like an, in some sort of simulation or a program. Yeah. And at, and especially nowadays, like we talked right now with the Hadron Collider, like things are just yeah. really crazy now. The whole scandemic thing and, yeah. you know, you have the whole political spectrum, w- possible war around the corner. You're hearing that, yeah. I think, Russia put nukes in fucking space. Right. Um, let's talk about that episode. What do you what do you think about the Matrix? Um, I, I think it's certainly possible. And when I... Again, it's kind of coming down to experiencer stories as opposed to, you know, thinking of it in a, in a large grand scale that we're all being scammed when I, when I, when I break it down and I'm telling or researching or reading or talking to these people that are telling me individual specific stories. Yeah. We're living in the matrix, you know, uh, when it gets to conspiracy level QAnon bullshit, I, I kind of. I kind of check out. I keep hitting the fucking mic. I'm so sorry. It's okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, when it comes to these, you know, QAnon conspiracy bullshit, it, that's kind of when it loses me. But when I'm down to the experiencer and this person is telling me, or I'm reading a story that says I used to have a brother and now I don't anymore. And then you get the whole background of how that came to be. And to me, it's very believable. I'm like, fuck, I think we might be living in the matrix, man. You know, like none of this is real, you know, it's, it's possible. Like we're some sort of experiment or a game or where someone's thought, you know, <laughs> my girlfriend and I are really into NPCs, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and we've, we feel like we've driven by a lot of them, you know, or, I, it, I'll be driving or I'll be walking somewhere and I can see that something's up ahead. But then as I, as I get into screen <laughs> mode of it, that's when it like turns on and starts coming toward me and it's just a car or a person or whatever, you know right. what I mean? But it's almost like it, it the, the game started once I got into frame enough or something. Uh, it's weird shit sometimes, man. It's weird shit. 
Yeah, like um, my my daughters, they went to like this. I don't know some sort of like uh performance, and the they use GPS to get there. So they tell me that the GPS told them to go down this specific road, but apparently it wasn't the correct road. It was one road over. So they drive down this road and it's pitch black and they hit a dead end. And on the left-hand side is a house in the distance. And one of my kids notices that there's somebody there in like the field. So as my, my older one is starting to move the car, it shines the light. There's a female there working like on the field and pitch black. So the person looks at them and it's a female doesn't say a word, just continues to look at them. I would think that if there's a car there and that's my property and it's not moving, I would be more like, like, who are you? What are you doing? They didn't say, they didn't say anything. And it wasn't until one of my children started to open dialogue and said, Hey, you know, we're lost. Can you help us? That it took that person two minutes to even give them an answer. They just stood there like with a blank stare, no emotion. And then finally told them, oh, this happens all the time. You need to go to the next road over. And I feel like they con- they confronted an NPC. <laughs> that's wild, dude. Because, I mean, why, why, that's such a yeah. weird reaction for somebody that's like, yeah. number one, working in the pitch black, dark, like on a field. They had like, a, what do you call those uh, wheelbarrows? Yeah. Like in the pitch pitch black. Like, who does that? That's weird, I don't know. Man. Anyway. Let's go to the next one, because okay. <laughs> this one okay. I love. Okay. I'm into weird shit like this. The Sleep Watcher of Cape Elizabeth. Can you get into yeah. that? Yeah, that's a fucking weird story, man. So this is, like in my neck of the woods, this happened in Maine. And um, over the course of a few months, people would wake up in the middle of the night, and there'd be somebody standing at the foot of their bed or next to their bed, watching them sleep. And once the person kind of, you know, woke up and got out of their days and realized it was a person and they, you know, would scream or would get up to confront them or something, this person would just run out the house, run out the front door, run down the road and got the fuck out of Dodge. And these people were left with like, what the fuck happened? And this, you know, it, it started happening to more and more people just in this one little town. And for a while, it was just on like this, this like two street area in this town where this mm. person was like breaking into homes just to watch people sleep. Nothing would be stolen. Nobody was assaulted. They were just being watched while they slept. And they don't know how long this person had been there, you know, and was it happening to even more people, but they never woke up. They never knew if this person was there. So it went, you know, the police got involved and there was a neighborhood watch that started and this person was never caught. So fast forward, I can't remember how many years, but like five, six years, fast forward. And in Nova Scotia, which is just like two and a half hours, like North of us, you know, in, in Canada, um, in Nova Scotia, something similar started happening, you know, in this little area in Nova Scotia, people would wake up to somebody watching them sleep. But now it was mostly women and they were starting to be assaulted. So a lot of people were putting like two and two together and they were like, is this dude from Maine or is this dude from Canada? And he was practicing 
in Cape Elizabeth and then escalated once he got to Nova Scotia. Well, after six, seven, eight assaults, the person was caught and they were actually brought to trial and put in jail. And when they got the police got his background and the, the, the South Portland Maine police worked with the Nova Scotia police, they realized this guy had no connection to Maine. He was preoccupied during these times that it was happening in Maine, you know, and it couldn't have been this guy. So to this day, the sleep watcher of Maine and Cape Elizabeth, nobody knows who it was to this day. He wasn't violent, right? He, the one in Maine was not, no. Yeah. Cause it kind of reminds me of like the, the night stalker from California, yeah. but the only difference is that that guy was a he, you know, he serial killed. killer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He was violent. But uh, I thought it was a, a good connection to make to the Nova Scotia guy and that, you know, they were onto something. They're like, Oh my right. God, we might've caught this guy. And thank God he didn't attack anybody in Maine, uh, but the poor people in Nova Scotia, they got hurt. But, you know, was he escalating? Was he practicing? But it turned out it wasn't the dude. And so to this day, like it's never happened again mm. uh, to, to people's knowledge. And it's just gone un, unknown, unresolved. It's crazy. Damn, your, your show was great, dude. <laughs> <laughs> and I tried to make it scary as fuck, too, to listen no, to. No, but it. I'm like, saying, I mean, it's just like these <laughs> like, obscure things that I've never even heard of before. But like it keeps cool. me interested. Here's another one, one that you said that you love, but also okay. scares the shit out of you because it scares the shit out of me was uh, season six, episode eight, Return of the Black Eyed Kids. Do you know the origin of it and the possible first reportings and what you found out? Yeah, yeah. So generally speaking, black eyed entities have been reported for centuries. Specifically, black eyed kids that come up and knock on your door and knock on your window of the car. That's a very specific thing to like the United States. And that happened in the early 90s in uh, um, Abilene, Texas, I believe, to this uh, gentleman. Oh, God, I can't remember his name. Oh, that's awful. I love him. We're friends on Facebook too. <laughs> that's awful. It's okay. It happens, dude. It'll but come anyway. to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's alliterative, like it's a BB. So, anyway. <laughs> It's awful. But David Weatherly, he wrote the book on black eyed kids and uh, he includes this story and actually interviews this guy as well. But it started in Texas in the early nineties. And he, this guy was in his car and he was paying like his internet bill or some bullshit and was like writing a check and you could like go up and uh, pay it. Brian Bethel. That's his name. <laughs> there you go. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so Brian Bethel, he's in his car and he's writing this checkout and these two little kids knock on his car window, you know, and it's like seven 30 at night. And he's like, what the fuck? So he kind of like puts down the window just to crack. And he's like, yeah, <laughs> like what? And the kids are like, um, can, can you give us a ride? And he's like, what? No, to where? Well, can you help us call our mom? We have to call our mom so she can come pick us up. And he's like, what? There's a, there's a movie theater. Or there's a phone right over there. Go use the phone. Do you need some change? You know, They're like, can, can you, can we come in? Can we get in the car? And he's like, no. And as they keep asking him questions, he's not just being an annoyed adult. He's becoming terrified and he's getting this really awful vibe from these things that they are not what they appear to be. They are not kids. They are some sort of demon or alien or vampire or something that is not good. And they're trying to trick him to get him into the car. He even found himself at one point having to resist putting his hand on the door handle to open it, to let them in. He had to resist that urge. It was happening. It, it, it needed to happen and he had to fight it. So he wouldn't open the door. 
So eventually he's like, all right, I've had enough of this. And he's like, go away. I can't help you. He rolls up the window and he starts to take off. He looks in the rear view mirror, assuming the kids would be there, but they were gone. And so that story happened and he posted this on an internet forum because that's what it used to be like back in the day. And it spread like wildfire. It went viral for its day. You know, it was viral before things went viral. And people all over the world started sharing their own black eyed kid stories. And a lot of the stories are people being at home and it's the middle of the night, or it's kind of late at night, nine, 10, 11, 12 o'clock. And there's a knock on the door and there's two kids there and they need help. They want to be let in because they need some sort of help. And when the people start getting this weird vibe, the kids look up at them and they have black eyes. And completely black, no white sclera, no pupils. It's just a black void of their eyes. And the door typically gets slammed. But for a while, because there was reports of nobody ever letting the black-eyed kids in. Well, some people started letting them in. And it was almost like a curse. If you let the black-eyed kids in, you know, people would develop cancer. They'd have a string of bad luck, like car accidents and, you know, bad things like that. So uh, that's basically the black-eyed kids in a nutshell. And there's so many stories that I have a a series that I do every year. And it's basically the black-eyed kids part three, four, five, six. Yeah. It's great, dude. So when the people let them in, yeah. Do you, do you know what happens? Like, yeah, for some of the people, um, uh, this one couple with the black eyed kids in and they asked to use the phone. And so the person had to go get the phone. It was like in the, the living room or whatever, you know, like the portable phone or whatever. Right. And when they came back, the black eyed kids had disappeared. Mm. Thus, thus their curse had been cast. Ah, I got you. Yeah. You yeah. Yeah. I mean? Other times they have been let in and they go get the phone or they're, they go make the kids some hot chocolate because it's cold and late and they're waiting for the parents to show up because the black eyed kids actually use the phone or pretend to use the phone. And then the, the adult is, you know, making them a hot drink or something. And then the black eyed kids disappear and they hear them upstairs or they hear them rummaging around, you know, and then they go to upstairs and they're yelling for the kids and they disappear again, thus casting their curse or whatever you know um there's one crazy story where this person claims that black-eyed kids killed their children and killed their wife and they were put in a menstrual institution and blamed for the killings you know that's pretty extreme that's hard to believe but it's a fascinating story to tell you know yeah that's a great story um this next one is probably the most intriguing one and probably the most scariest one do you do you know what which one i'm gonna talk about i don't know no more goes to the library to give a talk. <laughs> that is pretty scary. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, seriously though, but how was the, how was the turnout? And then did you did you sell everything yeah. out? Uh, I almost, I think I almost sold out. I sold something to everybody that was there, so that was cool. And it was a it was a pretty good turnout. It turns out my fandom in that specific town was boomer, and you know I accept that. <laughs> uh, so. That was interesting to just see, you know what right. I mean? I, I was hoping there were some more younger people there, but you know, I, you know, I'm not prejudiced when it comes to that. And um, so they were a great crowd and uh, they all bought something and that was amazing. So did you have anybody approach you with their own experiences at all? Absolutely. Or? Absolutely. We kind of did a little like Q and a like right. throughout, you know, 
and um, some people shared stuff. I didn't include any of it in the podcast because I wouldn't, you know, it's not like I had their permission to share that, but right. so some people shared stuff. Some people um, came up to me afterwards and told me stories, which that happens all the time. And then some people, uh, I think two people like handed me a pre-written printed out document that they wrote. Oh, I'm like, wow. oh shit. Yeah. And That's so I cool. took those home and read them. And uh, I think I contacted a few of them and, um, you know, got their story again. I'm so desensitized. So when somebody sees a light in the sky and it lingered it a little bit longer, or even if they saw a craft, like, okay, but I need something a little bit more to, you know, to keep me going. So I log their experience and I give them a kind, non-judgmental ear, but then I move on, you know, I got you, my man. Yeah. All right, so this next one is the uh, the last one, um, and it's your newest one, and it was oh, kind of sure. different. Um, yeah, yeah. Season seven, episode two, uh, cryptids and microphones. Uh, this yeah. one you invite Drewski and Z. So who are who are they, and what did you learn from them in, in sure. this uh, episode? Uh, Drew and Z, they are podcasters. They have their own podcast, and it's called Cryptid Warfare, and they mainly tell cryptid based stories. Have cryptid. Um, experiencers on cryptid uh, uh, investigators and researchers on but these guys also have their own cryptid investigation team where they go out in the field and hunt for bigfoot mostly uh, there is some dog stuff there is some dogman stuff there is some paranormal stuff that they tap into a little bit but it's mostly bigfoot stuff and they've had some really interesting encounters um they've yet to see a flesh and blood bigfoot with their own eyes but they have had rocks thrown at them they've had their alarms they set a, per, uh, a perimeter alarm every time they they set up an investigation and those are getting tripped a lot and when they go investigate it it's not a deer it's not a critter it's not this it's not that like really the only thing it could be is either another person or Maybe it's a, a creature of some sort. Right. So they came on and they shared some really fascinating stories. And one of them has a law enforcement background. And even before he got into cryptids or anything, he's um, he's on a case uh, with the rest of the state of Colorado. Really, there was this escaped convict and he had fled into the mountains of Colorado. And so there was this huge team put together to find this guy. And he was a part of this small team and there was a lot of three-letter alphabet organizations there and um he was part of local law enforcement so he was just kind of following their lead they were in charge and so he was part of this team and he was part of a flank and they were in like a diamond formation and while they were walking through the woods looking for this guy they started hearing stuff on their right and they started hearing this weird stuff on their left and it sounded like something large and bipedal walking making some sort of noise crashing around and to the point where they had to stop and like okay this isn't the guy right <laughs> you know and the uh, leader of their little squad had to like stop them and be like guys don't pay attention to what's going on we know what that's about it's none of our business. Keep trudging ahead. So that really weighed heavily on his mind. He's like, they know something and they don't want us to pay attention to it and just to keep going. And then afterwards, they were kind of debriefed about not talking about that kind of stuff, you know, like afterwards. So that that put a lot of speculation and suspicion in his mind that it was it was something more than just a deer or something that could have been in the woods, you know. Fascinating, fascinating stories. Yeah, they, they, there's speculation. I'm pretty sure you heard that. Like a lot of the three letter agencies know that these things yeah. exist. 
They yeah, just keep a, it on the wraps. There's a really interesting story from Maine. Again, not that far from me, about an hour down the coast. And there was this guy um, who would take the bus every day to go to work and back. And he was always one of the last stops at the end of the night. So it was him and the bus driver. And they went past this stretch of road where they saw there were like all these black Jeeps pulled over on the side of the road. And they never see it. It's just a small town. And there's all these black Jeeps pulled over on the side of the road. And they had these big construction lights out, you know, and it was illuminating this field that was beyond the road, this side of the road, you know, and as they're going by the bus has to drive super slow. Cause these cars are kind of taking up a lot of space. And so the bus kind of has to get in the other lane a bit to go around the cars or all these Jeeps or vehicles. And as they're going by, they both see a large foot on the curb and it's attached to a body that they cannot see that's lying in a ditch or something, but whatever this is, it's clearly dead. It's a very large foot and it's got a whole lot of unnatural hair on the foot and on the leg itself. And there's some skin missing and some fur missing, like it had been hit or something, you know? So they drive by very slowly and they see this, but then they, they keep going the next day. Cause the guy gets dropped off. So the next day he talks to the bus driver and the bus driver tells them, he goes, when I came back by all the trucks were gone, like nothing had ever happened there. However, it looked like the road was all wet in that specific area, almost like they sprayed it down or something. Hmm. So they're wondering if they came across, like somebody had hit a Bigfoot and the government kind of swooped in to like, take care of it. Fascinating story. Yeah, that's fucking that's awesome story actually. Can I can I make a request for a show in the future? Yeah. Um yeah. this is one of those that w- it recently happened but there's so much conflicting information but I would really like maybe if you could do some research into it and that's the Miami Mall alien incident. <laughs> okay. I think that would be a cool show. Uh a lot of people have done shows on them and in my opinion a lot of people are making too much of right. it. This day and age, with everybody having a cell phone, why haven't we seen clear video or just pictures of these 10-foot-tall aliens? We're seeing these really blurry things right. that aren't aliens, and they're, they're overhead pictures. And overhead blurry pictures, it could be a group of people. You know, because there was like large groups of people there and like right. groups of people running and all together close by. You know, they, they, it might look like a weird shape, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if there's much to it, but I was talking to, uh, I was on Drew and Z's podcast. They came on mine. I went on theirs. Right. And they asked me about the Miami thing and they have their own thoughts and stuff on it. I think they did a show on it and they asked me my opinion. So I told them that stuff and they said, well, there was over 60 cops and they created a no fly zone over that area during that time frame, except for the military. And I'm like, okay, that's fucking weird. <laughs> that's different. That changes it up, right? That changes it up. Right. So uh, maybe you're right. Maybe it's worth looking into and telling whatever story I find. Cause 
I started doing an episode on the Jersey devil. The next thing I know I'm talking about political intrigue with Ben Franklin, you know, so whatever I come up with, that's what I'll tell you. know what I mean? Yeah, so, it is what it is, man. It is what yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so no more, we covered our granite skies, yeah. which is available. We covered otherworldly more. Um, you have, uh, you, you do redoing, like you said, you just redid, uh, UFOs over Maine, which you yeah. added a lot more. And that yeah. one you're, you getting, you're, you're accepting pre-orders, correct? I am. I'm accepting pre-orders in the form of a GoFundMe. And, uh, um, you know, if you go to my social media, which is basically Facebook and Instagram, I should probably get on more social media, but it's so annoying, but dude, I, I'm the same way. Dude. <laughs> yeah. But if you, if you search me out on Facebook or Instagram, I'm at Nomar Slavic and, um, you'll see all my posts about UFOs over Maine 10th anniversary edition, and you'll see the GoFundMe link. It's $32 and that includes shipping and tax. I know that's a lot of money, but it's 445 pages and it costs a shit ton to print stuff these days. You go to Kinko's just to print something, you're shelling out like 10 bucks. I'm trying to print an entire book of, you know, over 400 pages and it's a shit ton of money. So uh, I'm not making a whole lot, but I want to get these stories out to people. So it's 32 bucks that gets you an autograph book, a sticker and a bookmark and um, almost 200 stories about UFOs in Maine. And that includes abductions, men in black, weird creatures. The werewolf story in full is in there. The Allagash story in full is in there. So uh, uh, it's it's definitely cool. And eventually in a month or two uh, or three, it'll be available on my online store, you know, so but uh yeah if anybody wants a copy man it's it'll be worth your time i promise yeah 32 dollars is is cheap compared to like all the things that you're doing and what it takes yeah. to print books like i've printed books before for other people it's yeah. expensive <laughs> you know what i mean mm -hmm. um so other than what you just released what's yeah. in the future for no more more documentaries yeah. more books like what are we I talking about you know, I would love to do more documentaries, but it's a rich man's game. I, I can't, I can't, I don't have the money. It's, um, it's too much travel, uh, even in, within my own state. Cause I need to be in an area for a day or two or three and that takes money. And, um, it's just, I, I don't have enough of it to, to do something like that and to try to raise money from it for it. It's just, it's tough. I'm not small town monsters. I'm not, you know, a bigger entity that's, that's more popular that a lot of people know. So, you know, the, um, it's tough to raise that money. So I, I got to do, cause it's not up to anybody else to create these projects for me. It's, it's up to me. So I'm going to do what I do best and that's working with audio. And that's the written word. Those are my two favorite things to do. So I do have some thoughts of a new book and it's women in white stories from around the world. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. Cause there's some really sinister nefarious women in white stories that I love. And uh, I came across one of them in Maine because of a UFO encounter. Uh, so that was really intriguing to me. And I'm like, oh, and then you start doing a little bit of research and there's La Llorona there, you know, there's yep. so much stuff and um, it, and it's really interesting and can be really scary. So I'm playing around with that. I'd love to do a black eyed kids book, but David Weatherly kind of like has the market on that. So, right. you know, I, you know, I don't know, but uh, other than that, I am always looking for more stories of anything paranormal related so it'll either come out in a podcast or come out as a, a book project or something and for some reason if I, I get a windfall of money i definitely will make some more documentaries <laughs> oh brother cool cool um yeah. you might want to write this down look up a woman white in puerto rico there's there's a story okay. of a woman white in puerto rico so cool
All right, my dude. Thank you so much for doing this. You're my man. Yeah. I love you, dude. All right. <laughs> this is a good time. I love talking to you. And I gotta yeah. have you back on my show, man. But you know, yeah, I gotta I gotta do another I gotta write down notes because I didn't write down notes for the first time I was on. So yeah. I could have been more detailed with some of my things. Oh, so sure. uh, you know, we'll set something up and I'll just write uh notes from where I left off because you know, I got like yeah. a shit ton of stories, man. Absolutely. All right, brother. Absolutely. So keep me keep in touch like we always do. We'll keep in touch yeah. and just let me know when your next projects drop. I'll still come on, you know, I'll still be, you know, listening to your stuff, you know, following your stuff. Cool. I'm going to I'm going to pre-order a book, you know, I'm going to do nice all those thing. things. Um anything else? Anything else you want to drop like any sites uh that people can go on? Uh, where where, yeah, where can they find i want to believe like yeah you you type in i want to believe and no more slavic into google and it'll bring up everywhere it's located but you can get it wherever you get your podcast apple and spotify are the most popular so type in i want to believe and um, there are a couple other podcasts but they're not active anymore i'm the only active i want to believe podcast or at least that has a lot of episodes so that's the one you want and uh season seven has a little ghost in a doorway so you know it's me (laughs) (laughs) and uh uh, also slavic store um uh what the hell is the name of it slavic store (laughs) (laughs) i forget my own store too bro don't worry about it yeah i forget man but uh all my links.com slash slavic has everything podcast store all that good stuff all my links.com slash slavic or it's such a unique name you can google no more slavic and still find all my shit so right right there's only one no more that one (laughs) one no more slavic man um plus i'm gonna put all your stuff in the description of the video anyway yeah i'll send you the the right links and all that good stuff all right brother have a great night and thank you again for doing this bro yeah thanks so much i love you to death man all right peace brother love you man